Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 15th, we're studying Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. St. Paul writes to the saints in Rome as a slave of Christ and as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me. It's always a, always a joy and a privilege. Pastor Linnell, we are studying Romans chapter 1, 1 to 7 today because it is the appointed epistle reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent in series A of the three-year lectionary. So not the one that we'll hear this year, but one that we do hear every three years. What does this text, Romans chapter 1, the very introduction, what does it have to do with the season of Advent? Well, in the season of Advent, we're we're preparing for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though um, it it sometimes gets put together with the Annunciation, right? The 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 Incarnation, because Jesus is still Jesus in the flesh in the womb of Mary for nine months prior to Christmas. But on Christmas, this this Incarnation is revealed to the world as he as he comes out. And so we we have this as sort of our our big celebration in that regard, um, and as Paul is is writing, uh, he he says some interesting things here in the in the beginning in his introduction to his letter to the Romans uh, about what seems to be um, the two natures of of Christ, and as we as we get into the text, I think it'll it'll become pretty obvious how uh, the things that Paul says really lend us into thinking about just exactly who Jesus is. Um, is he is he the son of David? Is he the son of God? Is he is he God? Is he man? And that is a, a really wonderful meditation for the time of Advent. And especially as this is the Advent foretext, like right before Christmas, um, the, this epistle uh, directs us uh, to to meditate on this divine mystery. So we're looking at the first seven verses of the letter of Romans today. We've looked at a couple of other Romans texts in this series. There was one from chapter 13 and another from chapter 15 as a part of the Advent epistles. Here we have the very beginning of Romans. And we're not studying the whole epistle straight through this time on Sharper Iron. We have done that before. But as we prepare to look at these seven verses, help us with a little bit of context. What's Paul doing in the letter as a whole? What are some of the themes that we're going to see him introduce in this text today. What do we need to know to read the introduction to Romans? The the church in Romans is uh, sort of a, an interesting bag, right? Because in most of the churches, uh, all of the other churches to whom Paul writes, like he started those churches or he has a, a really deep connection and relationship he's visited with those churches. Um, not, not so much here with Romans. Uh, not only that, but there's there's generally some sort of really obvious uh, conflict or crisis that Paul is writing to address. 
And here in Romans, it's debatable whether or not that's true. Um, there's, uh, Paul has a, a, certainly he has a, a mission, and Paul considers himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And the church in Rome uh, is, is kind of that. I mean, it's certainly not the church in Jerusalem. It has a, a pretty heavy Gentile contingent. And this ultimately, I think, gets to part of the reason for why Romans is being written. Uh, as far as the church in Rome, and when we say the church in Rome, we don't mean like one one building or one church. We mean that the community of Christians in Rome um, that might have comprised, you know, uh, multiple house churches and stuff like that, not just like one edifice or cathedral. Um, but the the church in Rome originally, um, lots of lots of Jewish uh, people who uh, hear the gospel as uh, Jews coming from Jerusalem and migrating, those sorts of things. And they, they seem to adopt the gospel, but they also adopt the gospel within a, a fairly heavy sort of Jewish ritual, uh, synagogue-style Jewish rite kind of thing. Um, when Emperor Claudius uh, boots the Jews from uh, Rome, the, the church that's left is, is really of Gentile converts. And it seems to be the case that these Gentile converts um, did not keep the the Jewish sort of flavor to Christianity. And when Nero comes in and the Jews are allowed back to Rome, what you end up having is a, a, a pretty serious rift in the Roman Christian church because you have these 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 Jewish Christians who are very excited to be Jewish, and you have these Gentile Christians who are very excited to not be Jewish, and who's right? Mm. And so there's this conflict. Are they supposed to be keeping the Jewish rights, the, the Jewish law, the Jewish you know, culture? Are they not? Are they, are they two different churches? You know, what and exactly how do they relate to one another? And this is not something that is particular to, to Rome, it's just exacerbated in, in Rome. But the, the question of Jew and Gentile Christians and how do they fit together is really a question that, that all of first century Christianity is trying to answer. And we might say pretty obviously, well, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And the reason that we would all say that is because we've been reading Paul's writings for a long time, but this is what Paul is dealing with. So like in Galatians, when he's writing to go, right, there's no longer Jew or Greek or male or right, free or slave or male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that there aren't men and women or even really Jews and Gentiles. But what he's saying is, is that none of you are saved any differently than anybody else. You're all saved through Christ Jesus, this, this pledge and seal put on to you in baptism. And, and this is very much going to be a theme uh, for Romans as he's going through it. And uh, but one of the things that he has to do in Romans is also establish who he is and why he has any authority to write to them at all, because he doesn't have that relationship with them. So in Romans, again, he starts off very much by introducing who he is and why he has any authority to write to them. And then he he spells some things out. He has to explain to them uh, a, a little bit about, you know, we'd say theology, but he has to explain to them the groundwork that other churches would have known because he hasn't spent time with them, and then draw them into uh, certain appropriate theological conclusions, and then later invite them to help in the mission and be a part of the greater church at large. So 
a little long introduction, but that's what's going on in Romans, and that's why that's why Paul's writing writing this letter and why it takes on the shape and form that it does. Uh, that's a helpful introduction. And again, as uh, certainly there's, uh, I would encourage our listeners to to read through the letter to Romans. It is one of Paul's longer epistles, but it's it's certainly worth a read through. It's beloved by many Christians for all of the the beautiful theological truths that Paul lays out. We're looking at the first seven verses today. Tomorrow's episode is actually going to look at the last three verses. So if you want to know what happens in the middle, after we finish this today, read through the rest of Romans. You'll be ready for tomorrow to cover verses 25 to 27 there in chapter 16, the very end. We've got the beginning today. This is Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. We read the text. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the text for today. That's Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. And again, that is the epistle reading appointed for the fourth Sunday in Advent in Series A of the three-year lectionary. Pastor Linnell, before we dig into individual verses and phrases here, just give me your overall impression of this text. What What's Paul doing here? What's he saying in these seven verses? Well, what Paul is, the first thing that Paul is saying is that um, he never had a teacher that got on his case for having a run-on sentence. <laughs> because this this whole thing is is all really just one, one big sentence, right? Um, but one of the things, again, that Paul is doing is he is establishing who he is, he's establishing who they are, and then he is establishing where that identity comes from and, uh, and really how it is that they're supposed to be moving forward. This all comes, in a certain sense, before that last grace to you and peace from God our Father, which is sort of where sermons, you know, start. And what Paul does um, is lays all of this out uh, as a as a, a groundwork for our relationship to each other in the conversation to come. It's interesting that Paul he he talks about Jesus, but he and and who Jesus is, but he doesn't really talk anything about at least here uh, who or what Jesus has done. Um, but there's a reason for that. Certainly, he's going to talk about that later. He'll talk about Jesus's death and resurrection and the like. But in here, he he doesn't necessarily appeal to those things yet. Um, and so as, as an opening paragraph, uh, he's, uh, he's establishing uh, the relationship between the speaker and the hearer and their relationship to Jesus and who he is. If we're going to be listening to one another, we're going to be talking to one another, we're going to have a conversation with one another, we should really try to understand uh, the, the nature of who we are and how we relate, how we relate to one another. You know, if if you're, if for example, and I, you could say that I don't think this is terribly trite, but you know, if you're if you're sitting in a in a in a pew, and you're listening to the pastor preach, or you're listening to the words 
that are that are coming from from beyond the rail from the pastor it it would it would not be a bad thing to ask uh, who are you really listening to who are you hearing and and who are you to hear them because if you uh, and there are a lot of churches or denominations or traditions that believe this but if if you are listening and you are just listening to a man speak well then those words carry much less weight um and they are much less effective um and i when i say effective i don't mean like in convincing you i mean they do less than if those words are actually from christ through his called servant you know if you are there because it's just sort of a convenient place to be and to gather so that you can fill your quota of listening to jesus time that's different than being there because this is where God has called you to be, to receive the things that he has ordained for you to receive. And so in, in our lives, and as you know, we're, we're studying this from the position of a, of a pericope and you know, how it works in church, it's sort of a, a good introduction that, that establishes that relationship so that as they're listening to the rest of the letter, they can do that from the right, the right frame of mind and they can receive those words rightly as God's words, not just the words of some random guy that happens to know things. With that in mind, this establishing of, of who Paul is and then who the Romans are and that setting forth the relationship that they're going to have as, as they read this letter then, it seems that the the two phrases that are, are key in that would be in verse 1 where Paul says he's a servant of Christ Jesus who is called to be an apostle, and then almost a bookend of sorts in verse 7 in this section, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So each one of them has a, a particular calling from God, and that is what establishes this relationship that they're going to have. Take us into those, those two callings, the one for Paul and the one for the Roman church. It is really important, and I think that it's also important as we keep in mind that he's writing to a church that's divided into Jews and Gentiles and you know who's who's the the right group or who does god love more who's the ingrafted branch versus who's the you know the tree those sorts of things he establishes first who he is so that he's establishing his authority to speak and when he says right a servant uh, you know most of the time your bible has a footnote and it says slave and the word there you know is is slave doulos it's slave and we, a lot of times, will avoid that language because of, of our particular history and political climate. It's, it's really kind of um, unpleasant, this idea of, of being or, or saying slave. Um, and that's, that's true. I think that to a lot of people, that word, even outside of um, American slavery context, is still fairly offensive because people don't don't want that they want to have some sort of autonomy in their relationship to god that's really kind of the whole idea of, of this um like making a decision for jesus kind of stuff right is that well god's making an offer but we're entering into you know a free will agreement on this thing and, and paul's really not terribly concerned with that um he's he's a slave he belongs to um a god in a in a way that is appropriate to who god is uh, and certainly God owns all the things, right? Uh, but in, in this particular sense, this idea of being a slave also carries with it some, some other historical and cultural significance. 
uh, the idea of being a good slave, of being a good uh, bonded servant, is that you would reflect the nature of your master. And so however and whatever your master is, you would take on his characteristics and no matter where you are, you would represent him. If you don't, then you're a, you're a bad slave. You're a, a bad bonded servant and you are portraying to the world a nature that is inconsistent with your master. You can take a look at this um, and you can see it perhaps better in the relationship that parents and children have. If your children go out into the world and they act according to the values and character that you have tried to instill in them, this is, this is a good thing. It makes you proud. These are good kids. But if they go out and they are doing things, they're stealing, they're lying, they're cheating, they're, they're hostile and violent in a way that you did not raise them to be, then this is not good, right? I raised you better than that. You know, you, you know better than that. Why would you do this? Um, and so in the same sort of sense, this is, this is what Paul is saying, and he's confessing to be a slave, a bonded servant to Christ. And the implication there is that he reflects Christ's nature, uh, not only in who he is, but in the words that he brings. This is not something that is foreign or alien to Paul's writings, but it comes up all the time. And even though it's not Romans, in Galatians, he has this, this sort of uh, fairly long conversation about how uh, the son is underneath of, um, is underneath of a guardian, right? But, and is, is a slave. There's no difference between a son and a slave until he comes of age, and the guardian being the law. And so in this respect, then, when he says slave, there is, in essence, a dual meaning to it. Because all of our children in this regard are slaves to us until they come of age. My son does not have the option to choose what he wants to do. I mean, he tries, but it doesn't work very well. <laughs> but uh, he does what I tell him to because I told him to because he belongs to me. According to all of the laws that we have on the books, he belongs to me. And sure, there's laws against me mistreating him in a certain sense. But for all other intents and purposes, I have a tremendous amount of leeway in dictating every little aspect of his life because he belongs to me similarly to the way that a slave might belong to me. And so in here, when Paul says a slave of Christ Jesus, that word slave, if you lose that, you also lose the subtext of being sons because you're not a slave as a piece of property as if you're just a slave for slave's sake, but you're a slave in the same way that a son is considered to be slave-like until the fullness of time comes, perhaps the resurrection of Jesus when he returns. And so Paul being a slave certainly conveys to the Romans his nature and how he reflects Christ, but also then the relationship of being uh, a representative that is, that is like a son, because that's exactly what we are. So when he says, Paul, a slave or a servant, right, of Christ Jesus, and then called to be an apostle, <clears throat> it's not the case that Paul got on a boat and sailed across the great ocean, landed in a new land, and declared himself a bishop, right? Paul as an apostle, is called to be that. Paul was not 
in any sense a friend of Jesus. And then Jesus came to him and knocked him off of his donkey and onto his, his rear end and blinded him and called him to be an apostle. And so he is called to be an apostle called by who? Well, called by Jesus. And this is, in essence, the authority that, that he carries with him. He is a, a slave. He is a son. And he is called to be sent. He is set apart. <clears throat> he is set apart for a purpose, for the gospel, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So this here uh, establishes who Paul is, why he has the authority to be writing and talking to the Romans at all, and what what Paul's nature is in who he brings, or uh, what Paul's nature is and what he brings as a representative of Christ. All right, and so that I mean that's well, let's let's pause there in terms of who Paul is, because as you said, this is one long sentence, and and if we we continue, we're going to really kind of come into a, a slightly different theme, which we will pick up. Mm-hmm. But but having established then that's who Paul is. What about who these saints in Rome are down there in verse 7? What's the significance of how Paul identifies them? The significance there is is going to be who they are and the obligation that they have, uh, in essence, really to hear that word. And it's not it's not so much like a, um, a chastisement, right? Well, you're not listening, and this is who you are, and this is who right? he's He's appealing in a... In a um, in a in an intrinsic way to who and what they already identify as. Well, this is who I am, and of of course you're going to listen because this is who you say that you are. So there's there's not any any chastisement. It's just sort of a reminding, and it's like okay, well we're going to have this conversation, and this is who I am, and of course because of who you are, then you know you know what your role is in receiving these words. There's actually three times in this first. Uh, this first opening sentence in this first pericope that Paul talks about being called. First, he talks about himself there in verse one, called to be an apostle. And then in verse six, before we get to those in Rome, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so both of these, they do kind of go together. They convey uh, slightly different ideas, but they're complementary. The idea of, of called to belong to Christ to Jesus. Uh, in this opening uh, statement, Paul addresses the rift that there is between Jew and Gentile churches, uh, Jew and Gentile Christians. Um, it's not that some of you are called to belong to a Jewish rite and some of you are called to belong to a Gentile rite or that you guys are called differently, like you are called to belong to Jesus. You're not called to belong to Abraham. You're not called to belong to Paul or Apollos. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is to whom you belong. To all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so not only this, right, but he he, it, because you could read that, right, including those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, you can read that in a in a way where he identifies them also as slaves, right? You belong to Christ Jesus, in a sense, as his property. And that's very true. But then also who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so then you get the idea that you're not you're not a garden tool or some sort of, you know, like 
asset, but you are you are actually beloved. Um, and that's not like you know you you love a pet, although we love our pets very much. But you you are loved as sons, and you are called to be that. You are called to be saints, um, called to be something that you are not. Called in this this idea of a saint, right? A sinner who is forgiven, and this both Jew and Gentile. So you're not called to be Jewish Christians. You're not called to be Gentile Christians. You're not called to be, you know, German Christians. You're you're called to be Christians belonging to Jesus, and you are called to be saints. And so, uh, again, with those two things, he establishes their relationship to one another, their relationship to Christ Jesus, and uh, in essence, uh, previews what his answer is going to be regarding the distinction between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Yeah, that's, I think that's very helpful. And to, to see the, the language of the called show up there again in verse 6 and 7 in reference to the saints who are in Rome, I think is, is helpful because I'm, I mean, when I think of the introductions to Paul's epistles, I, I, I think of him laying out who he is and his calling and his authority to speak. But this this flip side of that relationship that there's, a, and I don't know if, if this is a, the right way to say it, but I was rolling it around in my mind as you were, you were talking. Maybe they're, they have the authority to listen. And that's something that maybe we take for granted that well i mean of course i can i can listen but but this fact that you know this is i've been called by god to hear these words to listen to these words to believe these words and not as a, a jew or a gentile but as a christian that i don't know what do you, what do you think about that an authority to listen can we speak like that i i think that i think that we should you know because he he makes this reference so just before 6 right <clears throat> he says um, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, right? Among all the nations, like everybody, everybody, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. There is a distinction made in the world, and the distinction is not between Jew and Greek or free or slave or male or female with regards to the church, but the, the distinction is the church and not the church. And the gospel is to be proclaimed everywhere, like everywhere. But when you are called right, to, to listen in that regard, it's it's called to listen in faith, right? To, to hear those words, to have them strengthen your faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, to have that produce some sort of effect in you. And that doesn't happen to everybody, and it's certainly not by your doing or decision, but it's it's by the Holy Spirit and His work and power within you. This being, right again, the explanation to the third article of the Creed, I cannot by my own reason or strength do these things. And so the, the gift that we have sitting in worship, uh, reading and studying in our devotions, um, the, the gift that we have is not only hearing those words, but the fruit that it produces, right? So it's listening with a purpose and listening from a particular position. And I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, you take a look and you say, well, how is that such a wonderful gift? I mean, obviously it is, but somebody might answer the question or ask the question. And I, I would point to say something like, well, if you take a look at Jesus's disciples, like during his ministry, um, certainly Jesus walked around everywhere and he proclaimed the gospel to everyone, right? But there were his disciples that were called to hear certain things. There were his 12 that were called to hear even more things. And then out of the 12, often it was Peter, James, and John that were called to go and witness other things. Now, we don't want to take that 
too far. It's not some sort of weird Gnostic hidden or secret knowledge. Everything is, you know, is, is revealed in that sense, in sense through the scriptures. But you are called right, to hear and to see in a way that perhaps the world or others in the world have not yet been. And there is a purpose for that. You know, it, that purpose is certainly for your benefit, but it's also because you also will be called, perhaps not as an apostle, but but certainly as a witness and as an evangelist to those whom God puts in your life through your various callings and vocations that you have. And whether that's at work or with family and friends, certainly as parents, as servants in the church and as servants outside of the church, as citizens of this great nation. But you can't do that if you haven't first been called to listen and to hear in faith. Uh, so that is good news to have that authority to listen. That's what Paul is talking about for the Roman church and also his own authority as the apostle called by God. We're going to keep talking about this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, December 15th. We are studying Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we were talking about the relationship that Paul establishes between himself and the saints in Rome, that Paul has been called to be an apostle. He is a slave of Christ Jesus, so he comes with the authority of Christ. And those in Rome, they are called to belong to Jesus, not as some sort of property, but as beloved children, beloved saints. They are called to be saints. That's a relationship that these two parties have in this epistle. Now, we go back to this long run-on sentence that Paul has. That he's been called, you said, set apart for the gospel of God. We've talked about that, which he promised. This gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, so the Old Testament tells about this gospel, and this gospel concerns his son. And you mentioned this at the beginning, that we come into really a, a strong Advent theme here, that Jesus is the Son of God, who's descended from David, also the Son of God in power according to his resurrection. So take us into that, I mean, that very strong Advent theme that is there in verses 3 and 4. So when Paul when Paul speaks here, and this again, uh, you know, why certain texts come up at certain point in, you know, in a lectionary, um, you know, I think this one is is pretty straightforward and for how it relates to Christmas and Advent and, you know, the coming of Jesus and the like. Um, so which he promised before it to uh, set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So as we're leading up to uh, Christmas, we often remember very much the promises that are coming from uh, the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah and, and the like. And so Paul references this concerning his son. So not just promises beforehand through his prophets of, you know, of deliverance then, but, but concerning his son, concerning the Messiah, who was descended from David. 
And so in this, then he appeals to that this, this Christianity is, is not um, a, a break off from Judaism, but it is, it is the faith that was handed down from of old. Right? Uh, if you want to talk about, you know, today, the Jews and Christians today, like the, the Jews today are, are Pharisees is, is what they are. They follow a rabbinic tradition in this regard. And, um, and I, I mean this religiously, not ethnically, but that's, that's where that, that goes. But Christianity is not something different. Like it's, it's the continuation of what was always meant to be. And so, but he says here, and I think this gets into really what, what the text does so well as we come into Advent is who, dis, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, right here in this statement, what you have is the two natures of Christ, and it's uh, fairly straightforward and also uses very much the same language that we would use in, in any sort of elementary uh, theological setting, right? <clears throat> so he is uh, descended of David, right? He's a, he's a human. This is according to the flesh. He's fully human, and he does things according to his human nature, right? According to the flesh. And was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So then also, you have Jesus Christ, true God, or excuse me, true, true man, and also true God. And Jesus does things, uh, certainly, according to his divine nature, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, it's just, it's just really uh, succinctly stated. It's put out there. He's got two natures, and you can do a tremendous amount of that or amount with that in in the pericope and in if you're if you were to be preaching or something leading up to Advent. One of the things that um, makes Christmas so wonderful, and this this amazing thing is is that certainly it's the mystery of the incarnation, which you know begins March 25th at the Annunciation, but it's revealed now to the world. It was in a sense, uh, you know, hidden being prepared in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but now Christ is coming forth. And and in this in this revelation, uh, God is revealed to the word the world, the, the Father is revealed through, through the Son Jesus, but you also have this amazing mystery that that in this this swaddled babe in Bethlehem, right, you have you have true God in human flesh appearing. You think of all of your Christmas hymns, you think of all of your Advent hymns, you, like that's that's the whole theme, is that this this babe, right, lying in a manger, is actually the God that you read about in the Old Testament, and so there's this wonderful like you want to snuggle him up and kiss him, but at the same time you also remember that he's killed lots of people and he's kind of dangerous, and so you're not sure how close you want to get. But there's there's this fear, but also this great message of joy and. And it's all here in Christ Jesus. And so there's, there's just a, a, I don't want to say an endless, but there's, there's a great number of themes that you could go with here. The, you know, the, the reversals that you find in Luke, this, you know, word in flesh became flesh and built among us from John, like this, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises that so, so heavily, uh, so, so heavily brought forth in Matthew. I mean, that's all right here in these two, in these first two sentences. And I think that that's the primary reason why this text is chosen for Advent 4. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this certainly seems to to be the place where if you were going to connect it to the season of Advent, that's where you'd go. You, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, introducing this text, that Paul here doesn't talk a whole lot about what Jesus does, and he focuses much more on who Jesus is, you know, that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh, he is the Son of God, and, and that's seen in the—but he does mention here particularly when he's establishing Jesus as the Son of God, that the resurrection is the is the key moment for that. How, I mean, I get—I don't know what I'm—why why the resurrection? Why is that the key key moment that he mentions when it comes to Jesus being declared the Son of God? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the resurrection of Jesus, like if you if you read through that and you're just sort of giving it a, a glance or a skim through, you you might wonder, say, why the resurrection but not his crucifixion or, or his death or something like that. Well, you can't you can't be raised from the dead unless you die, right? <laughs> right. So if he's mentioning the resurrection, it implies that he also died at some point. Um, and as far as the reason for his death. Uh, Paul is certainly going to be talking more about this later, but but he does he does sort of assume that if you're calling yourself a Christian, and you know that Jesus died, you know that it wasn't like an accident, right? It wasn't like he was going to visit his mom and he was in a car and you know fell asleep and like like there was a reason for that, and so he does mention that, um, you know, the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. And the other thing is, is that in in Jesus's death and resurrection, certainly these are these are things that he does uh, uh, according to uh, his his human nature, right? Right. But they don't work unless he's also God. And so you can have like you you have you know somebody that you know makes a sacrifice for somebody else. Um, and let's let's go ahead and assume, uh, and this is wrong, but let's just go ahead and assume that you have you have a human being and they're they're completely sinless, but they're just a human being, and they go ahead and they offer themselves um, for the sins of another. Like, how many people do they get to make that sacrifice for? Well, it would be it would be one for one, right? But Jesus, when he makes a sacrifice, he makes a sacrifice for everybody. He's, an, he's, a, he's a limitless sacrifice, right? And part of the reason that he gets to do that is because even though he, he dies and rises uh, according to his human nature, the, the attributes of who he is according to his divine nature are conveyed in and through this, this human nature. And so you know, Jesus gets to be a, a sacrifice that is worth significantly more, infinitely more, because of how these two natures relate to one another. Now, as far as um, why does he mention by his resurrection from the dead? I mean, in a certain sense, there's there's a rhetorical um, there's a rhetorical reason. Like we said before, if you mention his resurrection, then you know his death is included. Um, but also, if Jesus dies but he doesn't rise from the dead then his sacrifice really isn't so great either. Um, his being raised from the dead, uh, being the sign that his sacrifice was accepted, and also being the hope that we have. You know, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of people forget is that our hope is not uh, go to heaven. Like it is, but that's not, that's not where that statement ends. 
like the hope of Christianity is not you live a long, good life and then you die and you go be in heaven with Jesus forever. That's not it. The idea is that Jesus returns. And when he returns, he promises to raise all the dead and to raise them in bodies and to give eternal life to all of those who are found in Christ Jesus by faith and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and he makes his dwelling place here with us and we live in bodies forever in a new earth. And you could call that a heaven on earth because Jesus makes his dwelling place with us, but that's actually the hope that we have. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't need to rise from the dead at all. If we were just going to go and die and be in heaven with him forever, then why can't Jesus just die and then his soul ascend to heaven? Why does he need to rise from the dead? Well, the issue is, and this comes up later in the in the book of Romans there, is that we are bound to Jesus, right? In in a, in a way that is uh, arguably, and right, for all intents and purposes, inseparable. We are in our baptism, buried with Christ into a death like his, and then raised to life in a resurrection like his. Wherever Jesus goes, we go. And so highlighting the resurrection is highlighting the telos of where our faith leads us. It brings us then around to kind of the whole thing because you know, everything leads up to that. You, you have in the beginning this, this, the prophets of David, and then it, it ends then with the resurrection. And yes, there's the ascension afterwards and the like and everything else, but I haven't seen anybody you know, float up into heaven yet. The point is, is that Jesus rose from the dead, and so we will rise too. And that's sort of the encapsulation of the story that Paul gets to, to bring forth to us in what is essentially, I don't know, maybe 15 words. That's right. Even and even though it's a really long sentence, but right. I mean, he does that in a very short span. And I think, you know, again, putting this text in the context of of Advent, to that that a text like this gets selected for us to read, especially on the fourth Sunday in Advent, right when we're about to celebrate Christmas, and our our minds are on just the the beautifully cute nativity that's been set up for most of the month of December. And oh, isn't that a, a nice little baby there in the manger? I mean, th- this is a reminder that that what we are celebrating at Christmas is not just that one event, but it, I mean, you can't separate it from the the whole story of what Christ has done for us. And that does, I mean, it's almost like Paul begins us with that account. And, and even as you've pointed out several times, you know, this takes us all the way to the incarnation, March 25th. The matter of the descent from David was, I mean, that's really important in the annunciation of our Lord. So it's like he's he's starting us with that fullness of what Christ has done, starting there on March 25th, and going through not just December 25th, but all the way through Good Friday into Easter. And yeah, he doesn't mention the Ascension, although I think just the fact that Jesus is the one who's called him and set him apart, like he's got to be ascended to have done that for Paul. So I mean, that it's the whole the whole account of what Jesus has done is in view here. And I think in our context, particularly where you know Christmas just dominates everything at this time of year, even in the season of Advent, just that that scene. If if at least if you're talking in a spiritual sense, you know that scene of Jesus being born that dominates our minds so much. Hearing a text like this helps us remember. Well, what's the big deal with this baby? Why why do I care that this baby's been born? Paul laying it out here, I think, really helps helps us to get the full appreciation. This is why you should care about that baby. He's the one who's going to die and rise for you. And and Advent is also a time, as we're looking forward to the coming of our Lord at Christmas, that we remember that Jesus promised to come again. And so as part of that Advent theme, 
uh, this text points us to if Jesus rose from the dead, then there must be another resurrection which is to come that, that encompasses all of those who are found in Christ Jesus. And that resurrection comes upon his return. So uh, as we are walking through Advent, right, the coming of our Lord, we're, we're invited very much to remember again that the Lord promises to come again. We're, we're not just celebrating Advent or looking at the coming of our Lord and preparing for the coming of our Lord is some sort of historical thing that we're all just pantomiming through because he's already come. No, we're, we are preparing for the coming of our Lord again, the coming of our Lord out of heaven uh, as he, um, as he uh, again, wipes away all of the things that are, are bad, makes a, a new heaven and a new earth, as he comes to raise all, uh, all flesh and then uh, to sit, in a sense, upon his judgment throne and to grant eternal life to all of those with faith in Christ Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. And here in right the uh, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Christ Jesus our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship, and so then you right are all sent with that with that same message. And so the you know the message of Christmas, or perhaps better stated the message of Advent, is certainly that our Lord is coming, looking towards Christmas, but also that our Lord is coming again looking forward to that great and glorious day of his return. One of the other parts of this text that really stands out, and I think it, it may catch Lutherans off guard in particular, is the phrase that Paul says, so we can continue with Paul's long sentence here. So by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That that phrase, the obedience of faith, I think in, in many Lutherans' minds, that sounds kind of weird, because I, I thought we were saved by grace through faith, and that wasn't about our obedience. So what do we do with this phrase, obedience of faith? Well, it seems like a, a fairly... Uh, self-serving Lutheran answer, but it's but it's not wrong. Uh, it's just introduced here um, that when Paul writes, uh, he has uh, obedience and he has faith, but he he sees those as synonyms. Uh, but when he sees them as synonyms, they're they're not perfectly interchangeable. Um, that having faith is obedience to Christ. And you cannot have obedience in a sense of like your actions without faith. So you can you can have faith and still screw up, right? You can still sin, but you cannot please God. You cannot have obedience apart from faith. So then which one actually matters? Well, faith is the one that matters. Faith is the ground of, of this conversation. And then the obedience is is the the word that he's trying to give us a, a greater understanding of and you'll see this again like just right here yeah it sounds like a, a again sort of a um a, a way for lutherans or whoever to kind of twist the text to you know come up with excuses but just read through the rest of what paul says in romans and in any of his other letters and and it actually becomes pretty clear you know, he'll talk about, well, by faith, these people did this and by faith, you know, that and everything else. And then he'll throw in randomly, he'll do the same thing, but then he'll throw in obedience. And you'll say like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Um, 
you you've been using faith like five or six times and then you threw in obedience what are you what are you trying to say well what he's trying to say is that if you have faith right that that you are you are counted as obedient and again this isn't this isn't a new theme abraham believed in the lord and it was counted to him as righteousness this is exactly what paul is going to go into in his converse in his uh in his further discussion where he talks about how the righteous shall live by faith notice he doesn't say how the righteous shall live by obedience um you know and and so in that regard uh faith and obedience go quite a bit together but but you you have to understand it you have to understand it that way that uh, to to say it again, if you if you are following the the rules, and I'm I'm using air quotes, you can't see me. If you're following the <laughs> rules, but you're not following the rules by faith, you're following the rules because you're trying to earn for yourself salvation or whatever. Then you're very much the way that Jesus is talking about with people who go out and pray in public and give alms in public and everything else, so that they can they can be seen. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Um, but if you if you have faith, like then then you are counted as obedient. And even those who have faith can go out and sin. I'm gonna say they can, but they do, right? I mean, you take a look at David, right? In, in all of the Bible, who has a, a closer relationship to to God to to Jesus than David? But David does some terrible things. And so how does that work? Because David was obviously disobedient a lot. But David approached this from a position, from a position of faith. And we do want to, we do want to state that that faith is a, a gift of God from the, from the Holy Spirit, as his Holy Spirit is at work through the hearing of the gospel. But when Paul begins here, he he is and uses these two words because this is also one of the conversations, one of the disagreements going to be between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Obedient to what? Do we have to follow these laws? Because if we don't, then we don't have that relationship with God. We're not faithful. Do you have to follow the, the laws about food, the ceremonial laws, the Jewish the Gentiles not have to do that? How does that relationship work? between following these prescribed, uh, say, Old Testament or Mosaic laws, um, ceremonial laws, and, uh, and having faith in, in Christ Jesus. And so that's one of the things that Paul is talking about here in this relationship between obedience and faith. If we really want to see the true obedience, we look at Christ Jesus. For he was the one that was truly and completely faithful uh, to his father, and also the one who was obedient to the end. And for us, through faith in Christ Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit, we have been baptized into Christ. His death counts as our own. His resurrection is one in which we will participate in. And his obedience also belongs to us through faith. And so the righteousness is not simply the wiping away of our sins, but the imputation of Christ's obedience in keeping all of the law perfectly of obeying his father's word uh, all the way until the end. That also belongs to us through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, and that, that baptismal connection is something that Paul will draw out later in this epistle, particularly in Romans chapter 6. And again, there's there's the encouragement, because we're not going to study this whole epistle right now. Read through it. Between today's episode and tomorrow's episode, read through this letter to the Romans. See how 
Paul develops a lot of these themes that he begins to to bring out in this introduction, and he's going to summarize them in the text we're going to look at tomorrow. So go ahead and read through the epistle of the to the Romans over this over the next twenty four hours before you listen to the next episode. Get a flavor for what Paul's doing here in this epistle. Pastor Linnell, we've looked at these first seven verses. We've got about three minutes here in the morning. As you reflect on this text and everything Paul is saying, you can remind us of, of what Paul's doing and, and how he's pointing us to our Advent and Christmas Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Paul is addressing uh, a, a disconnect, a conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. And he is pointing them to who they are in Christ Jesus. And I think in today's world, there's a lot of division among a lot of people. And one of the things that I think we we should take to heart is that for all of the different divisions and things that we have uh, in the church, the thing that we are called to be is one in Christ Jesus. And this is an admonishment um, around the board because that that oneness is the thing that we should seek, not simply trying to uh, to cut off right dead branches. But on the other end of things, it's not oneness for the sake of oneness. Paul is really clear here that we are one in Christ Jesus and that that doctrine, that pure and true teaching of Christ is what we are called to, to hear and to be faithful and to, obedient, to be obedient to in that regard. So as, as we take a look at a world in which there is much division, everyone, as they are hearing this Advent message, is called to repentance, but called then also to the oneness that is only found in the pure and true teaching of Christ's word, his death and his resurrection and his coming again in Advent for us. We must find that oneness in Christ Jesus, as Paul talks about, because that is the thing to which we are called and that is what we will be upon his return. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us today with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about this epistle text or any of the other Advent epistle texts that we've been studying here on Sharper Iron, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.